1: Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Ahmed mazmi a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Today I'm here to talk to Dr. Michael Christopher Lowe, the author of Imperial Mecca, Ottoman Arabia, and the Indian Ocean Hajj, published by Columbia University Press in 2020. Just a few words about our author. Dr. Michael Christopher Lowe is an assistant professor of history at Iowa State University. He specializes in late Ottoman, modern Middle Eastern, Indian Ocean, and environmental history. He received his PhD from Columbia University in 2015. Law also serves as the coordinator for Iowa State University's Indian Ocean World Partnership and PhD fellowship with McGill University's Indian Ocean World Center. Law is also co-editor with uh, Lali Jan, Ken Chul and Robert Zins, the subjects of Ottoman international law published by Indiana University Press in 2019, in addition to numerous other uh, articles. Today's book, Imperial Mecca, Ottoman Arabia and the Indian Ocean Hajj, examines how a fascinating history that brings together the Ottoman Empire and the Indian Ocean world, shaped the experience of the Hajj. With the advent of the steamship, repeated outbreaks of cholera, marked oceanic pilgrimages to Mecca as a dangerous form of travel and a vehicle for the globalization of epidemic diseases. European, especially British Indian officials, also feared that lengthy sojourns in Arabia might expose their Muslim subjects to radicalizing influences from anti-colonial dissidents and pan-Islamic activists. European colonial empires' newfound ability to set the terms of Hajj travel not only affected the lives of millions of pilgrims, but also dramatically challenged the Ottoman Empire. Which at the time, the world's only remaining Muslim imperial power. Michael Christopher Law analyzes the late Ottoman Hajj and Hejaz region as trans imperial spaces reshaped by the competing forces of Istanbul's project of frontier modernization and the extraterrestrial reach of British India's steamship empire in the Indian Ocean and the Red Sea. Imperial Mecca recasts Ottoman Arabia as a distant, unstable, semi-autonomous frontier that Istanbul struggled to modernize and defend against the onslaught of colonial steamship mobility. As it turned out, steamships carried not just pilgrims, passports, and microbes, but also the specter of legal imperialism and colonial intervention. Over the course of roughly a half century from the 1850s, through World War I, British India's fear of the hajj as a victor of anti-colonial subversion gradually gave way to an increasingly sophisticated administrative, legal, and medical protectorate over the steamship hajj, threatening to eclipse the Ottoman state and the caliphate's prize-legitimizing claim as protector of Islam's most holy places. Drawing on a wide range of Ottoman and British archival sources, this book sheds new light on the trans-imperial and global histories that traverse along the pilgrimage to Mecca within the Muslim and the Indian Ocean worlds. Thank you, Chris, for joining the Indian Ocean World podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: It's my pleasure. We would like first to learn about the author, if you can say a few words about yourself, uh, where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in Ottoman history and the Indian Ocean, and any influential mentors that you had along the way.
0: So I would just say in terms of uh, a bio and really thinking about the origins of, of my sort of uh, specialities um, that I'm, I'm a huge accident. I'd be the first really to admit that, that, uh, you know, if you were trying to imagine, you know, what an Ivy league trained scholar would look like, uh, in some respects, I, I wouldn't be the, the right choice. (laughs) Um, I grew up in rural Georgia, um, outside of Atlanta. Um, my family's from North Georgia. Um, and you know, you, you, you just can't imagine, you know, uh, in terms of elementary school, high school, uh, the, the idea that I would have ended up in New York uh, and at Columbia for my PhD, it really would have been unfathomable. Um, you know, uh, I, I think that the, one of the big breaks is uh, I followed my wife uh, when she got into medical school uh, after undergrad uh, and we went to Atlanta. And I was a school teacher. I was a seventh grade uh, history and geography teacher, and I ended up teaching essentially kind of a mishmash in the Georgia curriculum. It was, you know, kind of history and geography of, of you know, the third world in some respects. I mean, it was sort of a, uh, you know, orientalist stew: uh, Africa, Middle East, uh, and Asia. You know, sort of the the way they cut the curriculum up was sort of the the West uh, and the rest, and so. Um, after undergraduate, that was, you know, 2001, uh, you know, I step into the classroom. I'm, what, you know, 22 years old. And the first month into teaching, uh, of course, 9-11 happens. And I find myself in a, a classroom with a big Muslim uh, diasporic population of immigrants uh, just outside of Atlanta, a place called Avondale. And so if you. Some of you who may be listening, uh, you know, maybe uh, thinking of the, the recent elections uh, in Georgia and how pivotal DeKalb County was uh, in that uh, that coverage. That was uh, where I was teaching. Very diverse place. About 85 um, percent of my students were African-American and probably the other 15 percent were uh, recent uh, immigrants and refugees. And so I had a big population of students from West Africa Uh, from Ethiopia, from Somalia, recent uh, wave of Bosnians, uh, South Asians, uh, you know, sort of just a really wide cast of characters. But I had a big Muslim population in the classroom. And so, you know, in the course of sort of those years, 2001, 2003, while I was there, um, I became close with some of those students and, you know, one of the challenges I think that I faced both teaching about uh, the Middle East and Islam in that setting was, uh, in some respects, protecting those students. And they were facing a lot of discrimination, you know, being called names, you know, after Al-Qaeda and bin Laden, etc. You can imagine the sort of cruelty of 12 and 13 year olds in the wake of, uh, of 9-11. And so, one of the things that I started to do was really just sort of cultivate them and their families. And, you know, little things like, uh, you know, kids were starting to, you know, begin to fast at that age. Um, and they would come to my classroom, for example, during Ramadan, um, just so that they wouldn't have to sort of endure questions and also sort of the difficulties of being, you know, in a room full of people uh, eating lunch and sort of oblivious to sort of the the experience that they were having. And so a a lot of those experiences, you know, really warm experiences with students, um, I think sort of drove some of my interests and, of course, the the, the times that, of course, we were living in. Um, In about 2003, I guess, I went back to do an MA program, and, you know, I'd recently traveled to India and I thought when I went back to, to do the MA at Georgia state, I think, you know, I'll, I'll do British India. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I think as is the case with many undergraduates and MA students, um, but I had the good fortune in my uh, first class at Georgia state to have a historiography course, uh, with Donald Malcolm Reed, uh, who is uh, a scholar of, of Egypt. And Don was great. He sort of tried to meet me halfway with those interests in colonial India. And so we did a lot of comparative stuff, some directed readings. And out of that, I kind of stumbled into some of the uh, questions surrounding the surveillance of the Hajj. And so I started researching this topic somewhere in 2004, 5, 6, and it became uh, a seminar paper that eventually turned into uh, my International Journal of Middle East Studies article, Empire and the Hajj, uh, which was published in 2008. I mean, the thing that I would say about sort of getting started in Middle Eastern studies is, again, it was a lot of accidents. And, you know, where I started looks really nothing like where where I finished. I thought I was going to do British India. Um, I sort of migrated you know, in part because I was, I started out studying Persian. Um, You know, I really didn't have access to Urdu at the time. I think if I had been at a bigger university that perhaps, you know, my path would have diverged in a different direction, but I started studying Persian and then that led me to Arabic. Um, And with Don's encouragement uh, I ended up in Yemen for a couple of summers. Uh, studying Arabic. And I think that that really was the the moment where things started to gel and cement. Um, because when I was looking for places to study Arabic, you know, I was thinking, okay, I had these interests that connect, you know, the Red Sea and Hejaz uh, with the Indian Ocean. Where would one study Arabic? You know, you wouldn't necessarily, you know, look to go to Jordan or Beirut or, or even Cairo in some respects. I mean, those were the sort of normal places that people went. And so, you know, I reached for Yemen and I think that that was such a blessing because, you know, the, the Middle East that I think I was exposed to uh, was really an Indian Ocean adjacent space. And, you know, it was very jarring, you know, the, the imagery uh, of what the Middle East is supposed to be uh, in the literature. I mean, really, the literature of Middle Eastern studies is anchored and written from archives in Istanbul, and Cairo uh, or you know Beirut, some something like that, and so what I encountered in Yemen, uh, I think sort of gave me an imagination for what was missing. Um, and I still sort of I, I think I have an almost missionary <laughs> zeal, a little bit of a drumbeat about this, uh, that you know the Arabian Peninsula has been really poorly served uh, in Middle Eastern studies, and I, I think. You know, my philosophy on this is that, you know, you really can't get at the region um, and understand the peninsula uh, without having both recourse to tools from Middle Eastern studies and languages and archives, but also uh, some understanding of adjacent regions, whether it be uh, East Africa or South Asia, um, but also sort of British Empire studies, uh, South Asian studies. And sort of mixing the tools from all of those pieces, we come up with, uh, I think, a more legible uh, Arabian Peninsula. But the thing that I would say there uh, is that, you know, I don't think that I would have arrived at uh, this approach if I hadn't started from a bit of a place of weakness. I I didn't have the language skills uh, as an undergraduate and really had to sort of pick those up along the way as an MA student and as a PhD student. And I think the sort of scaffolding that I went through, sort of, you know, learning the British archives, uh, learning area studies, uh, sort of Arab studies, uh, the peninsula, uh, those literatures, and then eventually figuring out by reading that I wasn't going to be able to do the project that I wanted to do without learning Turkish and Ottoman. And so as I went along, I was picking up skills that I think if I had, sort of been laser focused from the beginning that I wouldn't have, have picked up along the way. So I think that my initial weaknesses, um, and really naivete, um, have in the end served me well and have become, you know, I think part of, part of my, uh, my brand, if you will, is, you know, this sort of trans Arabian peninsula, you know, between the Indian ocean and the Ottoman empire. um, Eventually, I ended up at Columbia University uh, in their international and global history program. Um, you know, for all of those students out there who are applying to Ph.D. programs, um, you know, I had an, a journal article coming out in IJMIS uh, as I applied. It was accepted and I got into zero Middle East programs. Uh, I ended up getting accepted to all the, the global, the world, the sort of transregional programs Uh, that I applied to, but none of the sort of straight area studies programs. And I think that that's been a lesson that I've sort of learned is that I have to to sort of be successful to play both sides of the street. Um, That, you know, part of the value that I bring is I'm not going to be the, you know, the greatest Ottomanist, the greatest Arabist, um, but I can offer bits and pieces of those fields and combine it with, you know, more global, and trans approaches and come up with something that I think is useful uh, for the field. I think I'll, I'll stop there.
1: That's great. It's always fascinating to hear somebody's trajectory and how it led them to writing the book. Um, so let's turn now to the book. Uh, I know the book that is based on your dissertation, but also the book differs considerably from your dissertation. Um so what was it like to um, research for the dissertation and then convert it into, a, into the book? And if you can share some of your writing experiences.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that the research for the dissertation, um, again, I would just say the sort of scaffolding. Um, I had a, a strong sense by the time I got to the dissertation stage of what the possibilities were from uh, this sort of Arabic historiography or Arabic printed sources had been kind of collected over a number of years. I had a, a strong familiarity with British archives, um, but, you know, as I sort of uh, I continued on my journey, I guess, uh, at Columbia, I was learning uh, Turkish and Ottoman Turkish, obviously, in print and then eventually paleography at uh, Yildiz Technique uh, University. And, you know, kind of right up to the moment of going to this Technique for paleography, you know, the Ottoman Archive was still a bit of a black box um, because I was, you know, working on the skills that I needed to be able to function. And, you know, a lot of the, uh, the research in the Ottoman Archives for the you know, early months is kind of trial by fire. Can, can, you, can you read the paleography and, and, you know, do enough volume uh, to do the research that you, you want? Um, and so, you know, I would say that the, the research part, you know, was a little scary, um, until, you know, I got my feet under me and realized, you know, after a few months, yeah, I I can do this. I can manage this, um, and, and sort of combine the skills that I had with Arabic and Persian and eventually be able to, to function well, uh, with, with Ottoman, uh, Turkish documents, handwritten documents. Um, I mean, again, one of the strategies for me was triangulation, right, was to sort of see and check if what I was reading in the British archives, if the story had a mirror in the Ottoman archives. And of course, you know, obviously uh, the perspectives are different, but I wanted to see what the connections and the divergences would look like. And that was always kind of my strategy was the British sources would be an entree, but then they would sort of give me some. Uh, some sense of what I thought the holes and the problems might be that the, the Ottoman sources could expose. I mean, the other thing that I would say, not just about the logistics of using archives, was about using these different literatures. Um, and I've said this in a few interviews, but I think it's worth stressing that um, there's a lot of rich material in Ottoman studies, but there's also a lot of really narrow i you know i hate to say it kind of boring material not very creative uh work that doesn't keep up in some respects with the innovations of the wider uh field of history um you know i was really inspired uh while i was doing my phd by work that selim Deringil had done where he was sort of incorporating uh lessons from subaltern studies and south asian studies and that to me kind of seemed like a way forward, you know, not to, you know, sort of copy what Selim de de was doing, but to sort of import questions that could be applied to Ottoman studies. And I think that's a lot of what I did. I mean, a lot of the inspiration for the book came out of questions that were emerging from, you know, uh, people like William Roth, you know, a few decades previous, um, but also reading people like Shugata Bose or Niall Green or Radhika Singha uh, a lot of South Asian studies, um, but you know, I was finding that as I was reading those really interesting, uh, you know, Indian Ocean works that were gesturing at all of these questions about uh, you know colonial surveillance of the Hajj, I was finding that what I was reading in the Ottoman literature was suggesting that the story was quite quite different. And so I tried to kind of take questions that emerged from the Indian Ocean literature and answer back um, with. Arabic Turkish and Ottoman Turkish, uh, primary and secondary sources. So I think that that was kind of the method for sort of melding these things together. Um, and kind of being a little bit subversive, right. Uh, you know, I, I I often wonder what will a South Asianist make of the book that I've written or what will an Ottomanist, you know, make of this work. Um, because I'm, uh, in some respects needling both sides and trying to sort of, you know, Push and pull them to consider things that that they wouldn't have, uh, uh, you know, without this work. So uh, again, the triangulation for me, I think, is a an important part of the the method.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I think this is very useful for graduate students, <laughs> and I always encourage people to get out of their comfort zones and take courses in other departments and other fields. And this is how you're going to refresh the, whatever field you're in. Otherwise, you will be recycling the same old, you know, yeah. narratives and, 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 yeah, approaches. Yeah, you, um, you,
0: you, can't be, you, you can't be good at everything. Um, and you're going to have your blind spots if you do transregional work. Um, and, and I certainly admit those. Um, but I do think that there is value in having, you know, a certain portion of every field having a little bit broader uh, scope and vision. Yes, we need people to do, you know, good local histories or good national histories, but I think we need a mix. And, you know, I'm hopeful that, you know, I'm filling that sort of macro-regional space.
1: Definitely. Uh, Let's now turn to the architecture of the book, Imperial Mecca. So the book consists of six chapters organized thematically in three parts, and it's also beautifully and richly illustrated and supplemented with useful maps, which I always appreciate. Um, and the introduction, which you titled Between Two Worlds, An Ottoman Island Adrift on a Colonial Ocean, which is a great title. Uh, let's, let's focus and zoom more on the Ottomans now. The Ottomans administered the, the pilgrimage to Mecca since the early 16th century after uh, their Mamluk predecessors. Can you briefly introduce uh, the listeners to Ottoman Arabia, what do we mean by this term Ottoman Arabia and its significance for both the Ottoman Empire at large and the Muslim world?
0: So it's um, you know it's interesting that you you mentioned sort of uh, uh, Ottoman Arabia and you know this this was I have to admit not a a term of my own making in some respects um, you know when the, the book was accepted and we were going to to market uh, the the press came back and said you know we got to change this title. And of course, you know, I'm horrified, don't change my title. Um, And the thing that they objected to was Hijaz. And, you know, with a little bit of critical distance, I I think I understand, right? Uh, You know, the book was meant to be marketed to both a specialist and a non-specialist audience, you know, people who wouldn't necessarily uh, be familiar with uh, Ottoman studies, Arab studies, Islamic studies, and so hijaz, you know, for the lay reader, you know, may not be a term that that everyone uh, finds accessible. And so they, you know, asked me to change the title, and I said, "Look, can we insert Arabia?" And you know, part of my thinking there was that you know the the book is yes, it's about the hijaz, um, but it's also about the Ottoman presence in the Arab world in Arab lands, um, and covers a lot of material related to the Red Sea, uh, especially Yemen uh, features in a variety of ways in the book. So it's a little bit of a capacious category that includes the Hijaz, um, but more than that, right? And so I think that that ended up being kind of a, a blessing in disguise to have that that name change uh, in the end. Now, in terms of uh, thinking about the Ottoman presence uh, in in Arabia or in the Hijaz. Um, I think one of my frustrations, it has to do with the lack of literature uh, on this. We um, you know we have uh, uh, an early modern study uh, on uh, the Hajj uh, by Saraya Faroqi. Um, we have a 19th century study from the 1980s uh, by William Oxenwald, really tremendous work that was you know, terribly valuable um, for writing my book. And then, of course, my, uh, you know, kind of partner in crime, Lalejan, John, uh, simultaneously was also writing uh, a book on Central Asians uh, uh, on pilgrimage as well. So, you know, those are really the, the handful of, of works there. Um, yes, there has been some stuff in, in Turkish, um, but we don't have a, a really uh, cohesive and rich historiography uh, on the Ottoman Hijaz. Um, and so I think that this has been a, a, a real weakness. And one of the things that the the lack of, of having depth in the, the field has done is I think that it's made people think that the Hijaz was this traditional space, right, that, uh, you know, ruled in a kind of condominium with the Sharifate of Mecca. And that after the... Uh, conquest of Mamluk Egypt uh, in, you know, 1516, 1517, that the Ottoman presence in the Hijaz just sort of stayed the same uh, for nearly four centuries. It was fairly static. Um, and, you know, Soraya Faruqi even mentions this in her early modern study that we have to be careful. Um, yes, there was a lot that stays the same. Yes, there were certain traditions that were adhered to, but it doesn't mean there was no change. Um, And when we get to the latter half of the 19th century, that change really dramatically accelerates. Um, Oftentimes when I was giving conference papers, I had a few senior scholars, one who would just get irate uh, when I would sort of suggest that um, there was a sort of new Ottoman posture in the Hijaz, um, you know, from the 1880s at least. And I, one of the things I wanted to suggest was that, you know, our sort of traditional ideas that uh, the Hijaz was left out of the Tanzimat reforms, yes, it was set aside in certain respects. Things like reforming slave trade uh, or uh, incorporating the Hijaz uh, in certain respects because of the sort of uh, religious uh, sort of special significance of the Hijaz weren't possible. Yes, I, I understand that there were certain exceptions made um, but it doesn't mean that the tanzimat state all of its uh, reforms to its bureaucracy its embrace of European certain European methods of, of rule new technologies um, and new approaches to things like international law for example borders passports all of these things arrived quarantines uh, in the hijaz and certainly reshaped the reach of Ottoman rule in the region. So if we wanted to sort of compare the early modern period, we would sort of imagine an Ottoman state that was kind of a, a seasonal security force that would go along with uh, the Hajj caravans from Egypt and Syria. It was a sort of intermittent presence, um, and it was able to to sort of uh, impose its suzerainty uh, over the Sharifate of Mecca, and tamp down uh, Bedouin raiding, uh, et cetera. But it wasn't a kind of stable, uh, permanent force that we would think of in terms of, uh, you know, 19th century governmentality and the kind of rule that comes to Arabia at the end of the 19th century. So one of the things I'm trying to sort of sort out is when does this change happen? When is a sort of new uh, state, provincial government emerge and I date this to a certain extent after the 1850s, but really coming into sort of full swing in the 1880s under Abdul Hamid II. Um, and partly as a way to sort of deal with challenges of the semi-autonomous nature of the Sharifate of Mecca and Hijaz province, but also as a way to sort of uh, uh, fend off the new challenges that emerged with uh, the steamship Hajj and the emergence of European colonial states becoming very interested in surveilling, monitoring, and even taking part in the governance uh, of the pilgrimage to Mecca.
1: Indeed. Uh, You've mentioned a few names of uh, historians who have dabbled and written about uh, the Hajj and uh, the Hijaz in Ottoman historiography. And I would like you... To reiterate some of your remarks and delve further into the historiography, if you will. So you situate your book between the Ottoman Empire and the Indian Ocean. And you wrote that the book, and I'm quoting you, attempts to locate an enigmatic place caught between two imperial worlds, an Ottoman island adrift on a colonial ocean, lost in the gaping chasm between the area studies regions that we now artificially divide into the Middle East and South Asia. So my question is, how does your book intervene in the existing historiography of the colonial era hajj by forging really a conversation between the scholarship of the Ottomanists and the historians of the Indian Ocean world? What is it's like to bring these different historiographies together and um, write, write your story uh, around that?
0: Yeah, I mean, so I think on the one hand, uh, you know, if we look at the Ottoman side of things, um, you know, I'm situating myself, you know, against a, a number of scholars in the last few years who've written about uh, Ottoman rule on the Arab frontier. You know, we could think about Salim Deringil, uh, Osama Maqtasi, uh Mustafa Minawi, uh, Thomas Kuhn, Issa Blumi, uh, to name a few. And certainly we could add in, you know, others uh, that have worked on uh, places like Iraq. Um, you know the thing I would say about this sort of Arab frontiers is again there's just not enough density. We we have you know two or three titles for each of these uh, uh, provinces. It's just not enough to have the kind of really full conversation. I mean, imagine if there were only two or three books uh, uh, written about uh, Egypt in the nineteenth century. I mean, it's unimaginable, right? There are hundreds of books uh, for for Egypt, so uh part of that is sort of the the depth of the field uh on the ottoman side is lacking the other side of things from from my perspective is that you know you started to see uh you know from the 2000s onward a kind of explosion of literature on the hajj so eric Tagliakotso's book on uh, pilgrims from southeast asia john Slight's book on uh the british empire and the hajj uh Eileen Kane's work on, you know, Russian uh, imperial pilgrims, uh, you know, lots and lots of articles that were referencing, uh, uh, you know, sort of colonial surveillance across the Indian Ocean. And one of the things that I kind of kept going back to is that Mecca, Jeddah, Medina, the Hijaz, the Red Sea was sort of a, 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 a missing piece. Right. So all of these colonial studies would follow pilgrims sort of inward on the journey uh, of the Hajj, but they, you know, once they, uh, the pilgrims sort of disembarked, they uh, arrived in Jeddah. you could really feel that the source base wasn't enough to really flesh out the story. Uh, and a lot of times you would sort of see otherwise really brilliant scholars revert to sort of, well, the Ottomans were incompetent or, you know, the Hijaz wasn't well-developed and there were all these problems. And they would sort of begin to repeat the tropes of the colonial archive, uh, not very critically and not because they're not good scholars, um, but because they just didn't have access to the right archival materials or the right languages in order to sort of fill in that, that gap. And In any case, it was peripheral to the, the things that they were saying. So what I wanted to do was to try and be cognizant of that Indian Ocean literature and at the same time draw in the sort of day-to-day operations of the hijaz and the Hajj and to sort of see that through the eyes of the bureaucrats on the ground and how they interfaced with consular authorities who were the representatives of these European colonial powers, but in particular uh, the British, the British Raj, and its sort of creeping influence uh, into the region. And I think that one of the things that I I figured out early on was that, um, you know, if we want to sort of get eyewitnesses uh, to the Hajj, um, you know, the traditional method has been to read a bunch of Safar Names, uh, Ritla uh, narratives and follow pilgrims in their own words, which is all well and good. Um, But oftentimes those pilgrims don't have the same perspective being there for a few weeks or a few months or even a year, right? They don't have the same perspective that the state has and and its institutional memory and the way in which the state insinuates itself into so many different questions, water infrastructure, law, diplomatic relations, commerce, trade, uh, transportation, borders, uh, quarantines, you know, public health. Bedouin relations, relations with the Sharifate shri of Mecca. There's just no way for those uh, pilgrimage narratives to capture the sort of totality uh, that the Ottoman Archive is able to, to, to bring out. And so I really felt like there was a, um, a missing piece in this really fascinating historiographical conversation, um, but it not only needed a combination of, of Middle Eastern studies and South Asian studies, but it also needed specific interventions in terms of the kinds of sources uh, that would be used.
1: Yes, uh, and honestly, before reading your book, I thought everything there is to say about the hajj has been said. But after reading your book, you come to realize there is so much to uh, uncover. <clears throat> so in your book, you pay attention to, as you say, the minute, quotidian mechanics of imperial rule rather than the grand strategic questions surrounding the caliphate and other forms of pan-Islamic legitimation. How did you approach writing such a history, um, which I may say, how to draw on imperial archives without making it the story of empire, as is the case, I would say, usually in the Ottoman historiography?
0: Yeah. So, I mean... To be clear, I mean this. This is clearly a, a, an inter-imperial history. I mean, it, it is a history of, of uh, the British Empire and the Ottoman Empire on some level, uh, right? But I do think that your your point is well taken. That um, somehow Ottomanists tend to sort of when when they approach a particular province, it tends to be a sort of Istanbul and province X relationship, right? that there's not a a sort of greater field of vision often that brings that province uh, or that location uh, into conversation with the surrounding world or even the Ottoman state into uh, comparison with other places, other empires, other systems of rule. And I think that that's a great shame in some respects. Uh, I have some theories on why that is. Um, I sometimes think that, Ottoman studies becomes a kind of handmaiden of a sort of uh, sometimes Turkish nationalism, but sometimes a sort of national story, a kind of prehistory of the Turkish nation state. And so I think that there is a sort of over dominance of stories about the Balkans and Anatolia sort of, sort of, you know, the ways in which um, the Arab provinces, the frontiers kind of fall away and become, you know, less important for Ottomanists. Um, I also think that the sort of um, the the buy-in, the price of admission to doing Ottoman studies, is so heavy in terms of the linguistic burdens that people need to be able to learn Ottoman paleography, and sometimes that you know requires multiple languages: Persian, Arabic, Turkish, and you know, different combinations depending on uh, which part of the empire we're talking about, Greek, Armenian, etc. cetera. Um, but I think that there is such a heavy price to pay to sort of uh, uh, get in the door, if you will, to the Ottoman archives that people tend to think of their whole field around Istanbul and around the Ottoman state instead of approaching it in a slightly different way. I, what I wish people would do more often is think of the Ottoman archive in much the same way we would think of any other archive, right? You might go to the British archive and look for meteorology or desalination technology or on questions of uh, intellectual history or law or whatever you're interested in. Um, It it wouldn't necessarily mean that you wanted to write a history of the British Empire if you visited a British archive, right? You could write a history of the, uh, the Gulf that has nothing to do necessarily with Britain. That wouldn't be your object of study, but you may need to use those archives. And so I wish that there was a little bit more creative uh, usage of Ottoman resources, which are, you know, quite uh, global in their nature, right? The Ottomans are sort of trying to see their position uh, in the world. And so, you know, you could, you could look for any number of topics there. So I wish that there was a little bit broader uh, way of thinking about using the archives. Um, Ahmed, back up and just repeat your questions. I went on a bit of a tangent. And let me kind of come back to the main main point.
1: Yeah, I mean, the book really pays attention um, to experiences on the ground, the, the quotidian mechanics of imperial rule, rather than talking about <clears throat> the late Ottoman Empire which is usually thought of, you know, in terms of pan-Islamism and the, the, futile, uh, the futile attempts of the empire to rejuvenate, um, whereas you turn the gaze away to see how things worked on the ground in terms of infrastructures, in terms of uh, management of mobility and so on. So I really appreciated that aspect of the book. Um, and, and we will talk more about that as we delve further in, into the chapters. Um, if, if you uh, allow me. Um, so the first part of your book, Extraterritorial Frontiers, uh, the first chapter, Blurred Vision, the Hijaz and the Hajj and the Colonial Imagination. So if you can tell us uh, in, in broad uh, strokes, uh, how does the advent of European imperialism via the Indian Ocean steamship transport in the mid-19th uh, century change and complicate the nature of Muslim pious mobility, as well as the Ottoman Empire's Relationship with the Hejaz and its non-Ottoman Muslim sojourning or settled in the region.
0: Yeah, so the the, the arrival of uh, British influence uh, in the Hejaz, I think, has been uh, a little bit oversimplified in some respects uh, because of the the emphasis on uh, sanitation and security. William Roth's sort of you know framing. Uh, of questions around cholera. And I I certainly understand why cholera uh, was sort of the the, the big event uh, in terms of drawing European attention. But in chapter one, one of the things that I'm trying to do there is go a little bit before uh, the the arrival of cholera as a sort of uh, perennial issue uh, relating to the Hijaz and look at the 1850s, right? So the 1850s brought Uh, A lot of attention to Ottoman reform, obviously the 1856 uh, Tanzimat rescript, of course, which was, uh, you know, uh, really a a response and uh, comes in the wake of the Crimean War uh, and was in some respects, these reforms were a kind of price that the Ottoman state needed to pay in order to continue to get uh, recognition of their sovereignty in the face of uh, aggressors, uh, in this case, uh, Russia. Um, and this had a tremendous impact on reframing the Ottoman relationship uh, with the Hejaz. So uh, reform and, and British pressure to reform the slave trade uh, was sort of starting to rear its head in the 1840s and 1850s. Um, we have to remember, too, that, you know, from the 1840s on, we have a sort of uh, Reconstructed Ottoman state uh, after uh, the occupation of Mecca and Medina uh, by the, the first Saudi state, by the Wahhabis. Um, so really the state is resetting itself in the 1840s and 50s, Ottoman state in the Hijaz, um, And at that same time, you see increased consular uh, interest, increased uh, trade interest because of the uh, uh, increased traffic uh, in the Red Sea. And we start to see that consular interests and uh, a sort of British interest in the Indian Muslim community there in Jeddah in the Hijaz started to really stir up trouble uh, locally, and in particular, uh, had an impact on the Hadrami diasporic community uh, and shipping industry uh, in the region. And so the, the conflicts that emerged uh, in those local communities really led to, of course, the violence that was seen in 1858 in Jeddah, Where the Indian Ocean component, I think, really comes to bear uh, in this chapter is that the response of the British Empire was to see 1858 and the conflicts that were really localized conflicts that had a lot to do with the relationship between Istanbul and the Hijaz, and had a lot to do with uh, a sort of mercantile, uh, questions the slave trade, uh, and again the sort of relationship uh, be- uh, among all of these players and the Sharifate of Mecca. Instead of seeing those m- more narrow conflicts, the British tend to see this, uh, you know, as they call it, massacre of Christian population in Jeddah, as an outcome of the Great Rebellion in India, as an offshoot, as an adjunct of that storyline, and so they concoct this idea that ex-mutineers, Said Fadl ibn Alawi, for example, uh, uh, were sort of espousing violent ideas uh, in Mecca and Jeddah, and that this influence of sort of dangerous individuals who had escaped or had been exiled uh, from India was turning the Hijaz into a powder keg. And it became a kind of uh, justification for greater surveillance and greater, uh, British influence, uh, in the region. And one of the things I try to do in the, in chapter one is to sort of trace this mythology and the ways in which the sort of violence in Jidda gets repeated, uh, and, you know, becomes a script, uh, through which, uh, the British empire comes to understand Mecca. So in, instead of thinking of most of the people who were transiting back and forth you know for pious travel uh as you know ordinary pilgrims they tend to start to see them as potential uh anti-colonial dissidents as rebels as exiles as uh you know potentially violent figures this morphs a bit when we get into the 1870s and 80s into the reign of Abdul Hamid II and becomes sort of suffused with ideas about the Caliphate, uh, about Pan-Islam. And also we see a kind of radicalization on the British side, a a beginning to imagine what peeling off the Hijaz, what separating the Shrifate of Mecca from Istanbul might do for India. It might be a a way of sort of defanging the prestige uh, of the Ottoman Empire, And so we start to see these kinds of fantasies, both about violence, but also about the potential of the British Empire becoming the sort of uh, premier, the largest, the greatest Muslim empire in the world, starting to emerge. And, you know, as this plays out, one of the things that strikes me is reading both British and Ottoman sources, there's a lot of uh, uh, sort of lofty rhetoric about pan-Islam, uh, and, you know, Anglo-Ottoman rivalry. But at the level of the sort of day-to-day operations of the Hajj, a whole host of really different issues are at play. Um, and, you know, each chapter sort of delves into one of these, as I say, kind of quotidian, you know, day-to-day issues, international law, consular representation, uh, quarantines public health water infrastructure borders passports uh, camel hiring uh you know basic questions of of commerce monopolies corruption um all of these kinds of uh small issues were in my opinion the things that were shaping and driving the anglo-ottoman relationship in the Hijaz. and in fact if we look at you know uh Uh, Ottoman historiography about what the Hijaz is supposed to be in the Hamidian period. It's supposed to be this great symbol of the benevolence of Abdul Hamid II, uh, a sort of prestige, you know, an anchor of the caliphate and a sort of base from which he can uh, sort of distribute his public image to the rest of the colonized uh, Muslim world. And that really doesn't hold up very well. Because it tends to sort of position the Hijaz as, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, a kind of a base of strength. And what I tended to see uh, in looking at the archives was the Hijaz as a constant weakness, a place that was in the making, that the state was trying to sort of uh, reconstitute and find a way to work around the sort of semi-autonomous constitution um, that you know dated back to uh, really the, the 16th century and bring it up to date in a way that could be used to protect Ottoman sovereignty. Um, but that to me is not reflected really in the sort of uh, the literature on pan-Islam that tends to see uh, Hamid II as a threat to the colonial world via the Hajj. Um, so I saw a very different story.
1: Mm-hmm. And more about that, uh, Chris, someone on Twitter a few days ago asked for recommendations on colonialism in the region. And your book came to mind because you use the term Ottoman colonialism. So is there an Ottoman colonialism? And in what ways the Ottomans' conception of their peripheries came to resemble their arch uh, imperialist enemies?
0: So this is a great question. You've, you've pinned me into answering the, one of the more s- sticky issues in the book. Um, you know, I toyed around with this and obviously, again, I'll I'll give uh, credit to, you know, a handful of authors for sort of, um, forcing us to think about this, this conversation, you know, Osama Makdasi, Salim Deringil, Thomas Kuhn probably is the one that influenced me the most. Uh, Of course, Mustafa Manao is also in that conversation. Um, you know, I, I shy away if you read the introduction carefully, you know, in the end, I, I'm a little bit ambivalent about this terminology. I think it's important for us to sort of acknowledge that the Hijaz to understand the Hijaz. It's both a place where the Ottoman Empire is recognizing new brands of of governmentality, new repertoires of imperial rule, and is certainly borrowing, adapting uh, and and watching what other co- colonial states are doing. Right. Um, on the other hand, the Ottoman state is also trying to sort of slowly figure out how to uh, adapt existing Ottoman structures, right? You can't just sort of start from square one and clear away all of the traditional agreements with local parties, whether they be, you know, urban merchants or the Sharifate of Mecca uh, or uh, the Bedouin. You You just can't sort of, you know snap your fingers, and have a completely new uh, state formation in the region. In any case, they didn't have the, the money, manpower, the resources, uh, or the military might um, to, to do this, right? So they were a little bit stuck uh, in that respect. And I just think that the Hijaz is both a place that is uh, being threatened by colonialism, but simultaneously kind of being influenced by the presence of uh, this European extraterritoriality, right? So the Ottomans are learning, you know, hard lessons on multiple fronts. Um, but in the end, um, in in the introduction, I say, look, we can't say that this is colonialism, that the Ottomans were practicing the same thing as Europeans. I, the thing, the thing that I think is the biggest problem with that is that it mutes or downplays the power differential between the two, right? You know, the Ottomans weren't engaging in colonial adventures across the world. They weren't threatening other empires, you know, uh, with the potential of, you know, colonial intervention or violence. Um, you know, they, they were the victim of this on their frontiers, right? So I think we have to be careful. We can compare, we can uh, sort of set these two things alongside one another. And I think that that's really useful and productive, but to say that they're the same thing or that there is an Ottoman colonialism, I think stretches things a bit too far. Now, what do we call it? I think that's, that's the sort of million dollar question. Um, I tried to sort of back away. And again, I think this brings out my ambivalence and um, you know, the degree to which I've been wrestling with this, you know, I tried to say, Let's look at what's happening in the Hijaz as a change in, uh, you know, repertoire of empire or governmentality, the degree to which the Ottoman state can reach into this semi-autonomous province and the degree to which it can homogenize and centralize. And, you know, I think that just because the Ottoman state wasn't successful in doing so uh, and couldn't fully fulfill all of its sort of hopes and dreams for what it thought the Hijaz could be, it doesn't mean that they didn't try, that they didn't make steps towards something that was more uh, potentially sustainable or that could fend off these challenges uh, from European colonialism. Uh, so I think that the effort, the sort of process that the Ottomans went through between the 1880s and World War I is instructive, whether it's successful or not.
1: This is a conversation definitely worth having. Um, I really appreciated, especially the second part of the book, Ecologies of Empire, due to my own interests. Uh, and I would like to ask you about the third chapter, my, uh, Microbial Mecca uh, and the Global Crisis of Cholera. So cholera was a global pandemic, yet its discourses were not globalized. How did the hedge as an experience became a mission in the trans-imperial environmental history of cholera? And what went into the process of what you call uh, the pathologization of pious mobility?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the big takeaways uh, from the book is the degree to which cholera has contributed in the way that we think about the 19th century hajj. It's contributed to this idea that pilgrims were a threat to colonial states, right? I think that's the old formation, is that they were either a security threat or an epidemiological threat, a kind of pathology. Um, And, you know, I'll I'll give a little bit of credit here to a couple of people. Um, uh, Lale John, you know, one of the things that she tried to stay away from in her her great book, uh, Spiritual Subjects, was you know, doing this sort of pandemic uh, take uh, on the Hajj. She wanted to sort of steer clear of that. And I think that there's good reason uh, to do that. I mean, she felt like the continuation of this uh, narrative, uh, you know, kind of, again, just pathologized uh, pious mobility uh, and the sort of ordinariness uh, of the uh, desires of Muslim populations making the Hajj. And I certainly recognize that and and take that really seriously. I think that it's so integral of a a part of the story of the 19th century Hajj, especially from India, that it it deserves a sort of central part of our uh, conversation. But at the same time, I think we just really have to be careful and sort of um, call it out for what it is. And so even in the introduction, I try to say, you know, I hope that this book tells us something about the genealogies of the way that we understand Muslim border crossing and travel. And, you know, I kind of fully admit that, you know, in addition to the historiography, I can't escape being a product of, of the times that I'm living in. Right. You know, I wrote this book in the wake of uh, September 11th, in the wake of all of the sort of uh, anti-terror legislation, Iraq war, Afghanistan, um, Arab spring, all of those things, even on up to, and including, uh, you know, the Trump administration's horrific, you know, Muslim ban. Um, and one of the things that kind of struck me as I was finishing the book was the degree to which our structures around surveilling Muslim mobility at airports, watch lists, no fly lists. Um, and even the idea of, you know, really, uh, defenseless, uh, helpless refugees being confused in the Western mind with terrorists, Um, that it had a genealogy that went back to this age of steam of confusing, you know, vulnerable populations in the midst of a pandemic with, you know, violent subversives and thinking of them in such ways. I really wanted to sort of um, put a spotlight on the really unreasonable and sometimes fanatical ways that the British empire thought about these things. And so in that chapter three, Microbial Mecca, um, one of the things that I want to accomplish is to show, you know, oftentimes we call the Ottoman Empire the sick man of Europe. Well, in that uh, chapter, what I see is a pretty reasonable, uh, scientifically engaged empire trying to protect itself from an out-of-control, denialist, quite fanatical um, British India that did not want to take appropriate steps to curb the spread of cholera and, in fact, took refuge in anti-scientific ideas of miasma. And so I think that this this sort of, again, this pathologization of, of Muslim states, Muslim power, uh, Muslim bodies has to be called out on multiple levels, right, whether we're talking about the Ottoman Empire or at the level of the the individual pilgrim who becomes victimized by this um, system of rules uh, that that really twists and perverts uh, what they're trying to accomplish with their travel to Mecca.
1: I appreciate your engagement with environmental history, which is another really lacuna in the historiography of, of Arabia. Um, And more about that in Chapter 4, Bedouins and Broken Pipes. Uh, I'd like to ask you, what do we gain by uh, paying attention to the environmental and infrastructural history of the hajj? Uh, And how does Chapter 4 approach this quest by examining hajj-related water infrastructures?
0: So, you know, I think that one of the things, you know, by holding up a kind of mirror, um, you know, my my straw man, I guess, uh, as I've been writing this, uh, is to sort of think of these stereotypes of Pan-Islam, Abdul Hamid II, uh, propaganda around the Hajj, uh, or to think about these colonial discourses about cholera and quarantine. And, you know, looking at something like uh, water infrastructure, you get a very different story Um, as I started to think about cholera, you know, goodness knows as PhD students, we often have these blind spots. We think we're going to the archive to think about one thing when in fact the archive tells us something quite different. And that was certainly what happened to me. I went in searching cholera and quarantine and really realized, oh, uh, you know, a waterborne illness, the real issue is water infrastructure. And that was so much more prominently displayed in the Ottoman archival record than it was in the British archival record, because of course the British weren't in charge of worrying about those questions, um, yeah, whereas the Ottomans, you know, had these other material concerns uh, for the upkeep and the care of the holy places and of the hijaz. Um, I just think too that uh, environmental history can be this way of cluing us into uh, things that sort of get you know, buried below the surface. Um, And so, you know, questions like aqueducts and water pipes, they don't sound very glamorous on the one hand, but in fact, they were at the very heart of the conversation that Istanbul was having about uh, how to manage the Hajj, uh, how to deal with cholera, how to sort of manage relationships with the Sharifate, with Bedouins, um, and also the troubles right, of trying to deal with this semi-autonomous province. They were constantly running into uh, questions of sabotage. Um, And one of the, I think one of the most interesting things that came out of that chapter was kind of a role reversal. Um, Oftentimes we think of uh, Ottoman relations with the Hijaz as the the principal um, uh, obstacle is not the environment, but rather the Bedouins, or that the Bedouins are sort of a proxy for thinking about the environment, right? Uh, uh, For the Ottomans. And one of the things that I found was that a lot of the uh, pushback and resistance to uh, uh, Ottoman efforts to reform water infrastructure came from urban, often diasporic, Khadrami populations, uh, Monopoly systems that brought in various elements of the Ottoman state, European consular officials, the Sharifate with local businessmen. And so urban elites actually became the, you know, great resistance to Ottoman centralization uh, and reform and not the Bedouins necessarily, who often, you know, get the blame for being the sort of, you know, uh, the violent force that is the limiting factor for uh, Ottoman governance in the region. So it really allowed me, I think, you know, by thinking about water infrastructure, to turn the tables on several conversations at once.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, we encounter Bedouins and uh, the Ottoman historiographies in very interesting and peculiar ways of depicting them. And I'm really intrigued by the way you've approached uh, the question of representation. Uh, So how does this chapter intervene in the way historians have usually written Bedouins into Ottoman historiography?
0: Well, I would say that first and foremost, they've not done a great job of writing Bedouins uh, into the historiography. Uh, And I'll I'll sort of take that in two different directions. Um, So one answer is that they're uh, kind of unreflectively... um, represented in much the same way that the literature or the sort of the archival documents present them. Uh, you know, you constantly see that the Bedouins are, you know, vashi, right? They're wild and savage. They're uncivilized. Uh, these are the kinds of words, tropes really that get repeated in the, uh, in the Ottoman archive. So either we have Ottoman historians repeat these fairly uncritically Or more recently, we have seen an attempt to, you know, apply a kind of subaltern studies, uh, you know, riding against the grain uh, approach to look at the discourse, right, to think about the ways in which uh, the Bedouins are, you know, misrepresented. Uh, So that's certainly a step forward. Um, But what I thought was interesting about that turn uh, in, in the literature was that, it oftentimes left out the material questions, right? Why, instead of just remarking on, you know, the the tropes, the Orientalism, the sort of received Orientalism, Ottoman Orientalism that was projected out onto the frontier, why not engage with the material issues themselves? Um, And that was sort of uh, my entree into thinking about the Bedouin. They show up and are blamed for a lot of things, Uh, destroying water infrastructures, sabotaging water infrastructures. Um, You know, they become a problem uh, with regard to camel transport, uh, raiding, uh, uh, again, sort of as a security force uh, for the Sharifate of Mecca. Um, And, you know, they're sort of a workforce also uh, in the the conduct of the Hajj, and I don't see that sort of way of representing them uh, very often uh, in Ottoman studies. I also think that there's a way sometimes we bend over backwards to give too much agency. Uh, so I'll, I'll I'll give an example of a, a, a one disagreement. Uh, Mustafa Minawi's uh, book, The Ottoman Scramble for Africa, uh, in his final chapters. He talks about the um, construction of telegraphs and tries to kind of posit an an Ottoman partnership with the Bedouin. And so, again, you can see sort of a subaltern studies logic, uh, 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 an attempt to bring in the local population and and think uh, about their role. Um, But at the same time, I think that this sort of oversteps, right? So the idea that there was a successful partnership. Um, if we go even a few years further along past 19 to 1902, where that book ends, uh, into the period between 1908 and World War One, you know, the, the Bedouins fight tooth and nail um, because they're worried that Ottoman subsidies are going to be drying up um, and that their sort of traditional uh, autonomy is going to be destroyed. And in, and in fact, you see that in the Ottoman uh, uh, archival record that the CUP state definitely wants to do away with autonomy. Um, and so it's, it's hard to sort of take uh, the idea of a, a stable Ottoman-Bedouin partnership seriously, right? So I think that the, the attempt, right, to bring the Ottomans into the conversation is an admirable one, um, but we can't be too fanciful um, in imagining what that partnership or lack of partnership might have looked like on the ground.
1: Mm-hmm. Moving from the Bedouins to the Hijazi elites, uh, and the th- the third part of the book, managing mobility, and the first, uh, the five, the fifth chapter, passports and tickets. How did the Sharifate of Mecca and the Hijazi elites approach the competing imperial powers to maintain their autonomy and profiteering of the Hajj services on land and sea? What was the impact of the new governing technologies of passports and tickets on managing mobility?
0: So in this chapter, I I really try to sort of um, capitalize, sort of flesh out um, the degree to which autonomy undermines everything. You know, all Ottoman attempts to sort of uh, efficiently manage the Hajj, uh, attempts to fend off uh, uh, European aggression and attempts to sort of more uh, centralize the, the administration of the Hajj. And so I, I look at this monopoly or cartel that is set up around the Sharif of Mecca in concert with a handful of uh, steamship uh, entrepreneurs, uh, you know, uh, a famous uh, Hadrami a diasporic businessman, uh, Omar Sakaf. And the ways in which they sort of draw in tentacle-like Ottoman governors, uh, the Bedouin, all of the various interests, uh, uh, Hadrami magnates that surround the Hajj. And some of the conclusion that I come to is that the fractured nature of inter-imperial cooperation around the Hajj basically provided space for the Sharifate to profiteer and essentially do things that were not in the best interests uh, of the pilgrims, right? Whether that be stricter uh, public health uh, rules, uh, stricter passport regulations, uh, uh, or or greater cooperation with Europeans, there was this kind of fragmentedness through which it it was a sort of opportunity uh, that this cartel was able to uh, emerge And the cartel itself had uh, relationships stretching to Bombay, to Singapore, um, and was also able to sort of reach into the Ottoman state itself and successfully bribe its way out of any investigations and trouble that emerged um, when some of their um, self-dealing and and corruption uh, came to light. And and so, again, I, I think of this as you know, you have these competing, two big competing forces in the book, European extraterritoriality and the weakness of autonomy on the frontier. And all of these attempts, again, to sort of streamline the Hajj kind of fall to pieces because the autonomous space uh, of the Hejaz, uh you know, provides the sort of perfect vehicle uh, for an unmanageable, you know, ungovernable uh, uh, space.
1: Yes, thank you for that. Um, and in connection, uh, Ottoman historians during the last uh, few decades have been arguing against the decline thesis, and Chapter 6 continues that tradition, the camel and the rail. Um, in what ways the new synthesis of steam and camel labor to service the hajj became sites really for innovation and contestation in the late Ottoman Hijaz what was it like for you to think between the camel, which would be a sign for the past, and then the rail together?
0: Yeah, so I was really struck um, by a few things, and I'll, I'll mention a couple of influences here. On Barack's work, uh, you know, his sort of engagement with uh, technology, uh, environment, animal history... Uh, uh, both in his first and and, and new book, uh, Powering Empire. Um, that was uh, certainly one thing. I mean, obviously, I studied under Richard Bullitt. Uh, so sort of human-animal environmental history is sort of uh, uh, a piece of my training and certainly influence from uh, the work of Alan McHale. So I think that you know, bringing animal labor into the story uh, for someone who's interested in environmental history is a... Uh, not a surprising move in some respects. Um but I I had a a, a little bit of a moment uh, an article that I, I really admire uh Niall Greens the Hodge is its own undoing. He had a kind of throwaway statement in that piece and he and he says something like um that Colonial Muslims, you know, traveled on the steamship and were introduced to the modern world. And here I'm I'm paraphrasing, but that they were sort of learning about, you know, modern technology and, and, you know, sort of uh, this new globalized world on their way to the Hajj. And they were encountering, you know, this European modernity. And then he says that when you arrive in Jiddah, you disembark and then you travel the rest of the way to Mecca uh, on a camel And that things slow down to the old Muslim space time, Um, that they, you know, that this is a sort of traditional space where colonial modernity uh, and development kind of don't, haven't sort of fully arrived. And that's true in some respects, but in other respects, I really chafed at that um, assertion. And one of the things that I wanted to show was that, in fact, the cartel system Uh, around uh, steamship ticketing, water provisioning, uh, pilgrimage guides, and camel hires, all of that was developing alongside an Indian Ocean steamship pilgrimage and became really big business. Um, And the camel hires uh, in the Hijaz exploded, right? Because you did have an influx of many, many more pilgrims Uh, and just a larger volume of people moving through the space, right? So I started to try and think about the ways in which uh, essentially all of these pilgrimage transport services became part of steamship capitalism, right? That they uh, were integrated into this Indian Ocean system. And here we have an Ottoman state in Istanbul modernizing, trying to narrow the sort of field of autonomy trying to centralize, trying to connect with the Hijaz to protect it from European uh, extraterritoriality or even uh, their fear of a coming war and military intervention. So how are they going to sort of move troops, men, materiel to the Hijaz and continue to maintain this critical connection, right? Which, of course, the Hijaz is the sort of physical uh, territorial anchor, of claims to the Ottoman Caliphate. So I have this kind of clash, right? Modernizing Istanbul, attempting to build the Hijaz Railway. I've always been a little bit frustrated with the Hijaz Railway literature because it becomes, again, a kind of propaganda piece for Abdul Hamid. And it, it oftentimes, I think, gets written about um, as something in his imagination, as a, you know, kind of to paraphrase, his great dream. And it becomes personalized in a way that I think is a, a bit fanciful. Um, and if you actually go back and read the documents, some of the has the um, uh, sort of reports that uh, propose the Hejaz Railway or something akin to it in the decades prior to when the project was taken up, the men who were making these uh Suggestions had material on the ground firsthand uh, experience often with the problems of autonomy, the problems of European aggression in the region and the the real physical constraints of, uh, you know, the Hijaz's position many, many, many kilometers away from uh, Istanbul, sort of at the farthest logistical and physical uh, extent of the empire. And so they, you know, they had practical concerns in mind rather than kind of, uh, you know, the hijaz railway as a propaganda piece uh, or as a sort of show of strength to the rest of the Islamic world. I, I don't want to sort of suggest that those weren't considerations too, but to my mind, there were uh, environmental, physical, and material problems and military strategic issues that they were trying to deal with. The other thing that I think comes up um, in trying to sort of Think about the Hijaz Railway in the context of Indian Ocean history. Is we, we, we see this claim over and over again. Indians contributed, you know, however many hundreds of thousands, millions of rupees uh, to build the Hijaz Railway. Well, if the concern, you know, truly was on the behalf of, uh, of the Ottoman state and Abdul Hamid uh, to ease and comfort the pilgrims, why did he not simply build a railway from Jeddah to Mecca? which would have been cheaper, simpler, and certainly would have cut down on many of the um, encounters between uh, colonial pilgrims and the Bedouin. Well, the answer is, of course, that the Hijaz Railway was never principally about the Hajj. It was always about the need to uh, do away with or narrow the autonomous rule of the Sharifate of Mecca and bring the Hijaz closer to the Ottoman state, militarily and strategically right so there're two competing narratives about the meaning of the Hejaz railway um and i felt like they were sort of ripe for uh, a retelling a rebalancing
1: mm-hmm. yes uh that definitely uh makes sense with looking at the the broader trajectory of ottoman policies in the hijaz um you end the book with an epilogue, Legacies and Afterlives, in which you think about the continuities between the Ottoman state and the Saudi state. Why do we need to rethink the history of the Saudi state building as profoundly situated in the Ottoman context? And how can that help us to understand the historical continuities and changes in the, and how the Hatch functions in the age of the nation state?
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the frustrations that I think I have come across is... That the study of the Hijaz, I think, is a bit unique uh, in in some respects. It's a place that doesn't have its own nation state, right? Think about all of the you know uh, provinces of the Ottoman Empire. um, Which of them don't end up with uh, a nation state? I mean, certainly Kurdistan comes to mind. Uh, Palestine is a you know sort of famous problem, Um, but the Hijaz is one that I think gets a bit lost, right? Because uh, there is no uh, transition from empire to nation state. That transition is subsumed by the emergence of Saudi Arabia. And so I think that we we end up with a very fragmented literature on the Hijaz, right? So you have people who have thought about the pre-World War I period. You have a handful of people who have thought about the Sharifate of Mecca uh, and Hashemite in a regnum. And then you have History of the Saudi state, which in many respects just buries the hijaz. It's just not an important part, or it's something that they want to forget, right? Um, because of a, you know a lot of reasons, but sort of a, a Najdi supremacy uh, in the story of what Saudi Arabia is as as a, a nation. So I think that that continuity is really important. Um, we have to remember that for Saudi Arabia prior to. Uh, the discovery of oil, how important the Hajj was, uh, how important Mecca was, Jidda were, uh, as administrative centers, um, how much tax revenue, right, from uh, the Hajj and, and Hijaz uh, figured into state calculations. Um, I also think that we have this problem where we turn our brains off, right, when the discovery of oil. Uh, comes in the 1930s, the oil concession, and then the big strike uh, in the late 1930s, we tend to think of, uh, we fast forward in our minds, and the histori- historiography of Saudi Arabia becomes about the petrostate state and oil wealth. Well, in fact, from the 1930s until certainly into the 1950s, 60s, um, Saudi Arabia wasn't a particularly wealthy state or a very developed state. That process had to, you know, had. had It had to take time, it had to germinate, right? And so I think that the Hijaz in the early decades of Saudi Arabia needs considerably more uh, thoughtful treatment um, in the literature. And I just think that we need to not fast forward and imagine Saudi Arabia as the post 1970s, you know, post 1973 uh, oil shake, you know, extraordinarily wealthy place that it became. Um, that I think effaces its early history. And I think it also sort of, uh, uh, is difficult in terms of skills, right. For people to connect these two literatures, to be able to read across, uh, Turkish, Ottoman, Turkish, Arabic, and then the two, uh, secondary, uh, literatures as well. So I think it's something that I'd like to see more of, um, on both sides a little bit more thoughtfulness about the Arabian Peninsula. I've said in a few of these interviews I'd love to see more Ottoman work on the peninsula uh, on uh, you know the first Saudi state, uh, on other parts of the northern uh, Arabian Peninsula. I think a Bedouin history, uh, you know sort of tribal histories uh, would be really useful to have as well, but we just simply don't have the, uh, the literature. Um, And in some cases, the literature and the conversation is stranded. You know, some of it, you know, I think of a person like uh, uh, Zakaria Kursun, uh, a scholar that works in Turkish, uh, has worked on the Arabian Peninsula. But that doesn't really come through for most scholars who work on the peninsula because they work, uh, you know, primarily in Arabic. Um, So I'd just like to see more of a, a thoughtful connection across these periods. Uh, emerge in the literature,
1: definitely. And uh, knowing the, the landscape of graduate studies in the, the states, I know that the second or the next wave of uh, Ottoman historiography going to produce excellent books on Basra, Kuwait, um, uh, as well as the Ahsa region on the uh, on the Persian Gulf side. And for the Red Sea, also we need um, more such works that integrate the the Ottoman empire with arabia and the indian ocean um well chris we've taken a lot of your time um uh, and i would love to continue this conversation uh but i think we have a lot to chew on now and uh i i uh really recommend uh your book to anyone who's interested in not just the the Ottoman empire but really uh, broader questions that we need to think about when we think about mobility empire um governance and the environment um so tell us uh, a bit more about what you're working on now uh, if you have any current ongoing projects or uh future ones that you hope to work on
0: so i'm currently uh here at uh nyu abu dhabi um have a, a senior fellowship here for the year which has allowed me some time and space and uh you know, a little measure of protection from the pandemic <laughs> and its ravages in the United States to get some some uh, progress underway uh, with a new book project. Um, so there's certainly some continuities with uh, my first book. In Chapter 4 of, of Imperial Mecca, um, I discovered uh, Ottoman attempts at desalination technology, and that eventually became uh, an article in Comparative Studies in Society and History, And that really has sort of sparked an interest in thinking about the environmental history of water uh, in the Arabian Peninsula. And so for the last few years, I've been collecting sources kind of as I finished up Imperial Mecca uh, in the American National Archives, British Archives, the Bashbakanlik in Istanbul, um, some smaller archives in Glasgow, uh, uh, the BP archives in Warwick. Um, And have been trying to sort of build a history of desalination technology as a way to think about interconnections between water, uh, energy, and eventually uh, a a sort of broader story about climate change uh, in the peninsula. So something that stretches from, say, 1850 all the way into the future. Um, a, A little bit more experimental, a little bit broader project um, but something that I think can leverage uh, my skill set uh, to bring together Ottoman sources, British sources, you know, English language sources, uh, plus Arabic materials. And so I would say probably what I've been doing most in the last few months has been reading uh, Arabic language newspapers uh, here in the Gulf uh, from Abu Dhabi and Dubai and Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and. Um, And really trying to kind of build up a little bit more uh, localized knowledge uh, of of the UAE uh, and the Gulf as a sort of way to sort of complement, you know, my previous work. Um, So, yeah, I'm 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 quite uh, happy with the way that some of this this new research is going, Um, but it's been slowed, obviously, by the pandemic, haven't been able to bounce around. Uh, and sort of, you know, be back and forth with Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman. Um, but, you know, there'll be time for that later when things uh, calm down again.
1: I'm glad you've taken up this project. It's, it's very timely and, and needed and it's going really to uh, contribute greatly to not just the, his, the regional historiography, but really uh, let us think about a global phenomenon such as global warming from the vantage point of one of the uh, major producers of, of oil. Um, so that's a fantastic project and we will be looking forward to it. Um, thank you for uh, for your time and sharing uh, your thoughts and uh, your experiences with us today. And, and thank you for the listeners uh, for listening to today's episode in which we explored Imperial Mecca, Ottoman Arabia and the Indian Ocean Hajj published by Columbia University Press in 2020 this is your host ahmed mazmi stay tuned for the next episode of new books in the indian ocean world